Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome to Teach Me to Talk. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist from teachmetotalk.com and myei2.com. And we have a really great guest planned for today, and I hope that she can call back. We were just talking, and then I lost the connection, and she's an international caller. She's a speech language pathologist from South Africa. And we've worked really hard to make this call happen, so I hope, hope, hope that she's able to get back through and we're able to uh, talk with her directly. So I'm just going to babble on for a few minutes and hope that she, um, again, is able to make this international call happen. Her name is Stephanie Wainwright, and she uh, says she's a longtime listener of the show, and she sent me an email. So I'm just going to go ahead with her questions, and then, again, hopefully she'll be able to really, really um, get the call to come through, and we'll be able to make this happen. It's much more fun when we have the back-and-forth conversation rather than me just talking about her questions and and all of that. Okay, so here we go. She says, hi, Laura. Hope you're well. I'm a long-time listener of the show and still enjoying it. I emailed a while ago. Um, I'm a therapist from South Africa. The reason I'm sending you this message is to ask you two things. Number one, I've recently started my own practice and have decided to start seeing little guys at their homes more often than the clinic. But this is new territory for me as I've always done therapy in homes more often, or, or I've always done therapy, I'm sorry, in my my rooms or in our office where I have access to all my toys and can think on the spot. I'm really struggling to transition to therapy at the child's home. They are a lot more distractible even when I pin them in. And she has pin in quotation marks. I've found that when they do... Uh, uh, and they're a runner, it's easy to go into big motor play around the house to get them back. And this often happens at the end of a session anyway. But I'm having difficulty with this adjustment. So I was wondering what's actually the better option, home therapy versus clinic therapy? And, you know, I think all of us wonder that when we, if we have gotten really accustomed to working in one setting versus the other, it is so hard to make that transition from one place that you've gotten really comfortable with that you feel like you've <laughs> that you're really your A game is there and then to be forced through taking a new job or a new practice like Stephanie's doing or just some set of circumstances to do the other setting, I think you always need to allow for some time to adjust and to, again, just become more comfortable. I think it does kind of become the grass is always greener on the other side. (laughs) So that if you're, again, forced into that situation where you're working at home and and you're not quite into it yet and you're still not sure of what you're doing and you haven't done it long enough for it to become your normal, it's going to feel a little uncomfortable and it's going to feel like things would go better if... We were back in that other setting. I've had the opposite uh, situation where for years and years and years, you know, almost 20 years of seeing kids at home, 
And then uh, whether that's when I first started to do early intervention, I just did some contract things, and I didn't didn't see children all the time at home, but I certainly didn't see them consistently in a clinic either. And then I had a period of time kind of mid-career where I had uh, an office setting. I still really preferred to see children at home because that was my my main um setting just from my level of experience in those those years and years of doing that. And then in the last year to transition to only seeing kids in the office, I've had the opposite situation happen um, that Stephanie's talked about because I, I was really used to going in and being in a child's home. And I think a pro, if we're talking about the pros and cons of these various clinical settings, a big pro for seeing a child at home is that it really is his natural environment. And he is going to be comfortable there and he is going to do things there that you may not get to see in an office setting. And lots of times when I'm seeing children here in the office now, especially over the last year, I, I find myself thinking, oh, I wish I could see this little friend at home. I think I would be able to get a better response or I think he or she would be more comfortable for me or with me and with what we're doing uh, because, again, the newness of coming to a different setting, the shyness factor that we often see with toddlers or I, sometimes I think it's that the office is so um, different than their home environment or different than where they've been before that they can't, you know, it just takes them a while to get comfortable. And so we spend a lot of our session doing that versus when we just hit the ground running when I saw those little little guys at home. So I think you could kind of look at it either way. I do think that home visits are sometimes more comfortable for parents too because it's convenient they don't have to go anywhere. And if you have a mom that's not <laughs> ultra concerned about how her house looks or if everything is perfect, you know, she's often quite comfortable with you just coming in and it becomes really easy and she just expects you to be there and it's just one more thing that they do. I do think sometimes home visits, though, for those moms who want everything to look perfect and be perfect are a little unnerving for parents at the beginning, but then after they get to know you and love you and get accustomed to you working with their child and coming in their home, I, I do think home settings are are more comfortable and certainly convenient for everybody. One con of working at home is that as a therapist, you're not always able to control the setting like you would like. There, one thing Stephanie mentioned is the distractibility factor, and she feels like that happens more at home than it did in the office because our office visits, you know, we structure those visits. We're in charge of the materials that we use and of the space and all those other factors that we can't really control at home. So that, for some people... Um, is a real con to doing therapy for a very young child at home. I think another con for home visits is that sometimes because things are so comfortable in their own home, parents may not take it quite as seriously. 
as when they're taking their child to someone for therapy. And again, it just adds to the formality and the officialness of the visit when a parent has to uh, really alter their daily routines and make a real effort to get a child in for therapy. So you may see more parent participation or, again, just the whole seriousness of it uh, for a parent. Maybe it's a little easier when it's an office visit versus home because they haven't been working as hard to make that visit happen. So, again, these are just general observations. I'm not talking about any one family or any one child in particular because we all know that those circumstances can change. <laughs> dependent on what a, a particular family or specific situation might arise. I do think that we have an advantage when we do home visits, too, when we are still able to come into a home and, and bring some of our own things, some of our own toys, and that's a real stickler in a lot of programs because now a lot of state early intervention programs don't want to allow this and they don't feel like you're really servicing that child in a natural environment when we take in toy bags and when we introduce things that a family would not already have in their home. Um, I really, uh, even if I worked for a program, and I've shared this on the show before, this is not news to anyone who's been a long-time listener, but I really like taking things into a child's home because I do think that the novelness of the activity combined with the familiarity of the setting makes for a really, really nice setup so that a child is comfortable where he is so you're not going to have those nerves or that anxiety or that shyness because he's somewhere that he's never been before. But you've got the novelness of a really fun person coming in with new things. And I think Stephanie is able to join us now. Let me try to put her on. Let's see. Hello. Stephanie, are you there? Are you there? Hello. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yay. I'm so excited. Excited that you got back. I thought if I just keep talking, if I just keep going on and on and on, maybe right. she'll find a way to make the call work. My technical skills are not great. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is okay. I'm so glad that you've been able to get in, and I hope the call holds. I hope we're able to hold the connection. I don't know what happened before. We were talking and then all of a sudden you were gone. My phone completely disconnected and it kicked me off the it kicked me off uh, Blog Talk Radio. So I hope this time it works. Yeah, holding thumbs. Yeah, I hope so. Okay, so I have read your initial question, but let's back up and you tell us about yourself and about working as do you say speech pathologist in South Africa, or are you called a different title? It actually depends which university you studied at. You. Really? Um, yeah. I studied at the University of Cape Town, so I qualified as a speech-language pathologist. Okay. But other um, universities, some qualify as speech therapists, others qualify as speech and hearing therapists. Wow. Um, but 
all the same thing, really. So let me ask you this. Do you have a national organization in South Africa so that everyone is still, even though you went to different universities and have different backgrounds, that you're still under one umbrella as a practicing profession or no? Yes, no, we do. It's called South African Speech and Hearing Speech Hearing Language Association, SASHLA. Okay, okay. Yeah. I just wondered if maybe having that organization or not having that organization would make it a little easier to be all be called the same job, but I guess that doesn't matter. Yeah, I think, well, for us, we were lucky, well, lucky in a way. We had a the head of our department. She studied in the States. So I think that's why our degree got called the speech-language pathology. Right, like we are in the United States. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, so tell me where you practice. You've you've recently started your own practice, correct? Yes, I have. Okay. Okay, and so what are you specializing in, Stephanie, or are you doing everything? Um, I'm doing everything. (laughs) Yeah, and a lot of a lot of people in private practice do that. Especially in the United States, that happens a lot if someone lives in a very rural area. They just mm-hmm. start their practices by not specializing, and they take whatever referral they get. Yeah, and we have to do it here because there are actually so few speech therapists. Really. And- yeah, they're graduating more now. In my class, I think we graduated about 13 of us. Uh-huh. And now they're graduating about 60 at a time. So it is growing. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it certainly is growing. So how long have you been a speech-language pathologist, Stephanie? Um, Five years now. I graduated oh. in 2000. <laughs> yeah, well, good for you. That's long enough, I feel like, to feel like you really have a handle on your job and you know what you're doing. I think that first year or two out, I don't know if you felt this way, but I certainly felt like it took me at least a couple of years to be confident Mm -hmm. and feel like, yes, I can handle this. I know what I'm doing. I'm qualified to do this job. (laughs) Still getting there. Still a little bit overwhelmed sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, so what made you want to start private practice? Um, it actually fell into my lap. Um, I asked, Well, what happens here is when you study, you have to do your year of community service afterwards. So uh-huh. the government places you in a job. Okay. And you go work in a hospital. And I was in a very rural, rural setting up in the bush in the middle of nowhere. And it was wow. a great experience. Um, and then after that, I worked at a big hospital in Johannesburg. Uh-huh. For and decided the big mm-hmm. hospital was not for me. Right. And then now, why I joined. Was, that? was it just was it just didn't suit your personality? You felt like it was you didn't have those long term connections with families. What what made you decide that that yeah. wasn't a great setting for you? A bit of both. It was very busy, and yeah. and not the busyness that was the issue. It was the not being able to catch up with yourself and. Right. sit down and think, okay, I've got these patients, I need to think about doing this. Um, right. I think, and also I was a very new therapist, so for me that was very overwhelming. And right. your patients only come once a month, so you don't build strong relationships with them. And 
and they do come at great. A lot of them just would look and they're not show up, and then you've got a six-week waiting list and people not showing up, and it was frustrating. And so there was a whole yeah. lot of issues. And I'm not from Joe. Well, I have family up in Johannesburg, but Cape Town is my home. So that was also tough. <laughs> right. So you got to move. Are you back at home now? Are you practicing at yeah. home now? Yeah. So oh. I'm back in Cape Town. Um, after that, the hospital experience, I moved back into private practice because actually in Cape Town, in our province, there aren't many posts available in government. That's okay. another issue we have there is that jobs are very scarce. Okay. Okay. So you did just have the situation that everything put together for you to be able to move back home and have a job that was a little more suited to you, not as many negatives. Yeah, so I joined a private practice, and at the end of last year, the therapist I was working with, who was running the practice at the time, her husband got a job offer up in Botswana. So they've moved up there, and I've stepped into her shoes and taken over the practice. Oh, there you go. It was just given to you then, so that's great. The circumstances worked out. Yeah, I know. It was a very exciting move. Okay, and so what's made you decide? I read the the portion of your introduction in your your question that you decided you would start to see your little guys at home versus seeing them in a clinical setting. Did you make that decision on your own, or was that kind of a program change? Um, well, I have been thinking of putting a safe program in place, and it is hard to do that kind of thing and I'm thinking maybe it's not the best idea (laughs) um, yeah just to I don't know I've always seen them in the clinic setting and a lot of patients I find prefer that they prefer coming to me Um, but I've always felt oh I really just want to see what they're like at home and what they do and um, uh, what would my therapy be like in the home environment as well how would I be as a therapist seeing somebody at home because I've seen adults at home for home therapy but that's completely different Absolutely, Um, yeah and I've done I did that really early in my career and it was when I did home health and just saw and that was always on the side but saw adults or children or whoever you know, happened to be assigned to me through the home health agency. And it's after seeing adults at home and then children at home, you can't even really compare it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so how how long have you tried seeing kids at home? This is pretty new, right? Yeah, just this year, really. And so you've had some struggles with that. Yeah, um... Just particularly with keeping them focused, I think, because they have everyone around them and the one family I go to, they're a big family and everybody comes home in the afternoons. I get there at about between 12 and 1, depending on my schedule that day. And, Uh yeah, when I get home, everybody's arriving home for lunch and the granny's cooking lunch and then cousins are coming in and out. So that's a challenge. (laughs) That's a big challenge when you have so many people there and just it just the it can become chaotic when so many things 
and so many people coming and going. So, you know, I shared before you got on today, I don't think you, I don't know if you could hear any part of what I was talking about, but I have had the opposite experience of you. I did, just for a short time at the beginning of my career, some home health and some clinical things, and then I switched and did something different, and then I came back and just since, um, late 90s only saw children at home all the way up until 2010. For a couple of years in there, I ran a little group program and had an office setting, but I still saw my one-on-one kids at home. And so I had the exact opposite experience where I saw children at home forever and then switch to seeing them in the clinic, and I have had the same struggles as you <laughs> with <laughs> coming in, and it, because it's just different, it's just a completely uh, different setting, and just the transition from one environment to the other. The pros for one setting are really the cons of the other <laughs> setting. If that makes sense to you. You know, at yeah. home, kids were comfortable and they were doing their own thing and they weren't ever really as shy or as anxious. And then coming to see me in the office, sometimes I feel like we have to overcome those things when mm-hmm. those those kinds of issues weren't really, uh, didn't come up as much when I saw a kid at home and when I when we started at home, too. And when they got used to me coming in and being fun, and this is the routine we're going to do. And so I think I got so comfortable doing that for so many years that it was kind of hard for me to switch to an office setting. Yeah. Yeah. And uh completely lost my train of thought now. <laughs> I suppose <laughs> establishing a routine when you arrive at their home would be really helpful so that they I know. Yeah, I yeah. think that's the main thing. And so the children that you're seeing at home now, Stephanie, did you first see them in the clinic or are these completely new clients that you're seeing that you're establishing relationships with them at home in the beginning? They're completely new clients. Okay. And it is going well in that they are excited to see me. Yeah, yeah. But, and I think that that's the, the most important thing is to really establish that relationship right at the beginning and establish that whole, uh, oh, my goodness, she's here, it's time to play, you know, that whole routine. Because I think if we can get kids hooked and really into that from the very beginning, that sometimes we don't have – as many issues than if we start off with it not being very fun or very enticing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think if you can go in from the beginning and make it all about, again, it's so exciting, but you have to work so hard to establish that. And, again, I think it's really different than a kid coming to see you at the office. And I think it's an uncomfortable, too, because if this is a new setting for you and you're been so comfortable with the other way it's just going to really take some time for you to feel like that's normal for you and I think it's also the issue if you're going into someone's home you don't want to take over too much I don't want to run right with it yet (laughs) I know and I think that just kind of 
comes with time. You feel more comfortable with saying to a mom, okay, you know, I, I'm, we're not going to be as effective if we're sitting right here working and people keep coming in and out of the door. You know, can you put us in a quieter place or can we, you know, how can we work together to make our time here as effective as it should be and get mom really or granny or whoever's there really involved in helping you minimize some of those distractions. I mean, that would be really hard, Stephanie. You could be the most exciting, most fun person in the world there with the little guy that you just described. And if you have cousins coming home for lunch, who can compete with that? Yeah. (laughs) The cousins think I'm really cool and I bring cool toys as well. (laughs) And that's another problem. Well, and then they want to play. Is it has it been easy to incorporate those children in, or no? Um, yes, in some sessions. Um, there's one little guy in particular, and a, he's got a gorgeous little cousin who's the same age as him, and she's babbling away and going on, and she wants to play, and she wants to show me all her toys and have right. fun. But, yeah, I did hear your show. I think early in the year about that as well. Managing family yeah. members. <laughs> It is really hard to manage. And for some kids, they really need that other peer model. They need a little cousin or a sibling or somebody there to play appropriately and to interact with you. And a lot of times we'll see our little clients imitate those behaviors. And and when we can really use another child, that's great. But for a lot of children, that simply won't work yet. And you'll have to work with um, the parents or grandparents or caregivers, whoever's there, to um, occupy those children or just make other arrangements. Because if your little client's not benefiting, you know, there's really, and you can't make it work, you have to think about the child that you're there to see. And I think that makes a lot of therapists uncomfortable. They don't really know how to have those conversations with parents or they feel like, gosh, I'm already coming into their home. I don't want to say they can't have people there because this is their home. But I think you have to say and establish kind of some boundaries and some guidelines and say, you know, I love little whoever is there, but the little guy I'm coming to see is just not able to participate because he's distracted or he's so, you know, he doesn't know how to share yet or he can't, you know, he doesn't engage with me when she's here ever. So trying to work those conversations are sometimes uncomfortable, but we have to have those conversations. Yeah, and I suppose the more you do them, the easier it gets. Totally. And I think sometimes you have to do them, you know, sometimes at the very end of the session so you can just say what you need to say and then leave. And then then maybe they'll just kind of, you know, work it out before you come back instead of being there the whole time. You know, however suits your personality, you'll have to kind of figure out how to have those. But I do think it becomes easier over time with having those kinds of conversations and with figuring out a way to say it so that it's not so offensive so that you are still coming across as nice and nurturing and so that there's no doubt in the adult's mind that you are just that you are just doing everything you can to benefit 
the child mm-hmm. that you're there to see without disrupting their whole family. And I think that's, you know, just the whole mutual respect thing. You know, we do want to be respectful when we have these conversations, and we do want to consider that sometimes the family may not be able to work out arrangements for other children, or they may not. It just may be beyond their ability to control a circumstance, but we still have to tell them, I think the session would be more effective if X, Y, or Z happened. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it as well. Yeah. And so do you have a harder time just making yourself have those conversations, or do you have them and they don't go well, or? Um, I probably have to learn how to be more firm about it. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard to be firm and still be nice. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you're working, that's a balancing act. And that's a, and for and some families you can have those kinds of conversations with and they take them, they take your, your, your I guess you could call them recommendations and they're fine with, but again, some families don't have other options or they become a little bit offended or whatever. And I really think there's no one answer or no one suggestion that would work for every single situation in every family. It's one of those situations where you just kind of have to say what you would like to happen in the session and then, you know, deal with it and help just just walk through that situation with the family and figure out if you can make that happen. There are some families that that just aren't able to um, accommodate those kinds of requests. And so I feel like I'm saying the same thing. You'll just have to really walk through every situation. But we, it is, I do think it gets easier with time, with being able to, after you've done home visits for a while, you'll get more comfortable and you'll just be able to say to a family, this is what I think should happen, and be able to say it in a nice enough way <laughs> so that they still like you and don't fire you. <laughs> yep. uh, yeah, to make to make that work out. And that's just part, you know, you'll just have to find your way too. And some of that comes with age. Yeah. After you work for a while, you just feel a little more fancy about what you can say and what you can kind of, you know, make how you can make those statements and still feel nice and still feel like you said what you need to say. Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. And then the other thing is the time factor. So I'm finding with home visits that I'm spending a lot more time there than I've planned to. <laughs> and with some oh, parents, they, they say to me, it's time to go now because they need to get going to work or something else is happening. And that's great. <laughs> But then the kids are starting to work, and it's still starting to build up. And so, are you not paid for a specific amount of time to be there? Do you not have any constraints that way? Because I'll tell you, in the United States, that's what gets people. If we're paid for an hour, or if we're paid for thirty minutes, or forty-five minutes, if it's a time-based system, that's helpful. Is your system not like that? No, we are time-based, and I usually in about 45 minutes in a home. Okay. And, and so you, you just yeah, have a hard so time making yourself leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or something else comes up and I know I have to get going now otherwise I'm going to be late for the next one. That's and what kept I'm me on schedule for years. 
is just the, the being late for the next one. And then if you don't watch it, you're an hour late all day long. And you just that's you just can't do that. You just cannot do that. I mean, I think you just that's a that's just a personal thing. And if what I when I I I didn't struggle with that very long because I always had <laughs> the next mm-hmm. appointment to go to. And if I found, if I ever found a family like that, I would just really you know who wanted me to stay or who didn't ask me a question until I was on the way out the door or yeah. those kinds of things. I started just walking in and saying something like. It's 2 o'clock. I'm leaving here today at 2.45. No matter what happens, I always stay way too late at your house. I just must love you guys so much. But today I'm getting out of here on time and just kind of starting that, starting the visit like that so that it's up front I'm staying 45 minutes and then I'm out of here. Yeah, and I think that helps you be able to move on. But I think a lot of people struggle with that. That's not the first time that I've heard that, and a lot of you know people have asked that question before. How do you stay on time? And for me, it's just always about being able to get to the next person without being so late that they're frustrated that you're not there when you're supposed to be there. Yeah, I know. With one visit, I have started setting my cell phone timer so that it goes off, and then I have to go okay. Sorry. And a lot of people, a lot of people use systems like that because, again, it keeps them accountable and just kind of keeps your day moving on. And I, I'm so uncomfortable when I run late, just internally. Yeah. Even though you know I could be ten or fifteen minutes late, literally all day long, but it would still bother me that. I did that, especially if I had people who were so time-dependent, like you said. They were trying to leave to go to their next thing. So I I think that's just a matter of you telling yourself, this is it. I'm doing it. It doesn't really matter what's going on. At the end, I have to make myself leave because then that just that's going to keep you on time. And it does make you get more efficient, too. Sometimes I've joked that, it takes me 30 minutes to really get in an appointment and sit down and dispense with the small, the small talk, you know, that we do with caregivers yeah. and parents and people that we love because we see them every week and we're getting to be friends with them and they're asking me about my children and, you know, mm-hmm. whatever we talked about last week. And I think it we want to do some of those things at the same time not really shortchange our little clients. So we have to just be more personally disciplined with getting in there and getting going, and then leaving on time. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) It's hard. (laughs) That's a hard one. I'm glad I didn't. And, you know, I have the same thing in the office now, too. People will come in for an hour and appointment, and sometimes it's an hour and a half later, and Johnny's coming and looking at me and coming in the door, and he gives me that look like, do you know what time it is? Um, and so you do just, you're better at the office. We're completely yeah. opposite, Stephanie. We've we've figured uh-huh. this out today. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, I I can I can easily look at the clock and go, okay, time to go. <laughs> yeah. And why do you think it's harder to do that at home? Um. Yeah, I don't know. I suppose it's just that unfamiliar setting. It's not me in control. I suppose that's yeah. 
the whole base of the issue. Yeah, and I think with time it'll get more comfortable. And really what I would do, and and I do this too, is just make myself, like you said, your cell phone timer, anything that you can do that just would internally keep you on track as far as what happens next. Um, I would just do that even if it makes you feel a little uncomfortable or like, and I've had people say to me before, you know, I don't want to be rude when it's time for me to go, but if mom starts telling me a story or grandma or whatever yeah. else happens, you know, and then you're you're there 30 more minutes, you know, that sometimes comes up. And I, I, think, I, I think it'll get more comfortable in time when you're saying, you know, or when you go in at the very beginning and say, you know, it's, it's 10 o'clock. Uh, our time is done at 10.45. We better get moving so we get everything done today. I think it, it helps just to kind of establish that at the very beginning. Yeah. That does make sense. You already know that. Yeah, I'm preaching to the choir here because I know that you already know these things. <laughs> I was putting them in practice. That's a lot harder. <laughs> I know. I I know. One thing I would do with some visits, too, that you you touched on a second ago is I would really have some pretty consistent routines that you do. Like you walk in, you talk to uh, whatever adult is there about how the week is gone. You know, whether I usually have or almost always had parents participate and play with us so that we're doing that and I'm taking their questions and we're talking about things as we go. And then five or ten minutes before the session time is supposed to be up, that's when I would start my wrap-up so that I'm saying, let's talk about how today went. Let's talk about the words he used or the signs she I taught her. Let's make sure you're comfortable with these suggestions that I've made. Let's talk about your questions so that you really establish in your own mind you know, the how the schedule of each session. And so if you start that five or ten minutes before you're supposed to leave, you more than likely get out the door on time too. Yeah. Now, do you leave little notes for parents, Stephanie, when you do home visits? Do you leave a follow-up note? Yes, it depends on the parent. Um, I've right. emailed follow-ups. So send an email afterwards going for what we did and this is what I think um, right. because then I'll have time to think about it a little bit more and go okay no he definitely yeah. did well with that right. and that kind of thing um, yeah and then there are some home visits where I have left notes and other times I just it's been verbal so yeah well yeah. I think the note for me just a written note at the end of every session for me helps mm-hmm. me kind of get that it's time to move on feeling too so that I didn't overstep and so that's something that may or may not help you. It's just a suggestion with knowing how to wrap it up and you know because once you've written the note you've talked to them about this week I want you to try this and try this and next week when I come in I'm going to ask you how those things went and then you're handing them the note you know giving your little friend hugs gathering your things and then you're out the door. And I think having that building those kinds of routines where you're doing the same kinds of things and saying the same kinds of things at the beginning and at the end of your session will help you get more comfortable with how things go and it'll kind of help your help you wrap it up a little easier too because you've already 
you know, this is what you do. This is how it ends. And you may be doing some of those things for your clinic visits, but you haven't quite figured out how to do that for your home visits yet. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose the note thing is also really helpful to get your own thoughts in line because I need that kind of <laughs> structure as well. Me too, right me too. And that would always, yeah, and that would always help me kind of wrap it up with a parent and help and help make me accountable for doing that parent education piece. And I know lots of therapists really struggle with that, with how do I make sure that this time just hasn't been me working with this child and the parent has no idea how to carry that over. And a lot of times we think, well, a parent will know how to do this because they've watched me for the last 45 minutes, but that's not always the case. So I think having that wrap-up time, that five or ten minutes at the end of every session, helped me be able to be sure that a parent understood what had happened during the session and helped them become um, a little more accountable for what the homework was or for what the recommendations were or however you want to call it so that they were able to carry through. And then one thing I always try to do before I went back to the next visit is think, what was what was the homework for last week? What did I ask them to work on? So that when I came in the door for the next home visit, I was saying, last week the three new signs we learned during the session were da 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 da. Tell me how that went this week. How did that go? Or if there were, you know, if we were working on receptive language in everyday activities and their homework was to work on put your cup in the sink and go get your shoes, you know, I would walk in and say, How did that go? Did he follow commands a little bit better this week? Tell me how he did when you asked him and, you know, the specific examples I gave them or, you know, that they gave me something specific so that we started every visit kind of where we left off the week before. And that also cut down on a lot of that just uh, small talk stuff at the beginning that, you know, you can look up and 20 minutes has passed while the mom tells you about her mother's knee surgery or you yep. talk about a television show or that's when yep. I think we get off schedule too. It's when we have all that, all those questions and all those things that, you know, you love a family and you want to be friendly, but we can't always be friends. And um, I think that that always helped me to really going in asking how the homework went or whatever, how the goals were moving along and it sort of started to visit off and then got us talking about therapy versus the hundreds of other things that we could talk about. Yeah, and I have had one really um, sweet dad who films our sessions. And it yeah. was a little bit strange in the beginning, but he was great about it, and he just said he's just going to sit back here. He just wants to film what's going on so he can review it. Mom can't be in the session, so he shows it to mom afterwards and they discuss it. And then I can give him ideas as we're going along and say, oh, did you see how he did that? Right. That kind of thing. So with that family, that's quite nice that I can give the ideas as we're going along and he has a record of it. Yeah, I like that too. But do you find yourself being uncomfortable because you're being recorded? In the beginning, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
And I can understand that. Virtually every therapy session, though, I've done for since 2008 has been videoed, and that gets easier with time, too. You just yeah. – I mean, there are some, some kids I don't video, even in the office now, because they're just not good candidates for being videoed because it just – Either they're really apprehensive about the camera or they're in so many different places in the room that you never get a good shot or whatever. But for the most part, um, I think you're just, I think discomfort with that goes away over time too when you're really used to being videoed. I'm glad you're comfortable with that. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Getting there. Because that nerves a lot of people. A lot of people get kind of freaked out about that. So that's good. Good for yeah, you. I'm, I'm okay with the family watching it at the moment. I don't know if I'd be able to put it up. <laughs> well, they're not going to put it on YouTube or anything. So. I hope not. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Okay. What other kinds of things did you want to talk about as far as um, your home visit stuff in general? I know you have a specific question about your next little guy. Um, that you email me a part that you uh, email me a part of that last you know what I'm talking about yeah. that last part of your email yeah but did well, you have any I more think, just kind of general stuff yeah I just think I, what my main question was was what do you feel is better the clinic or the home visit because I think what I've been doing now is giving parents a choice so after yeah. I've done this assessment and we sit down and we chat about the report I say I can do it at your home I can come and do a home visit and this is what I think of it and or you can come here so I leave it up to them at the moment um but I think in my own mind I'm still not totally sure what I feel is more beneficial it really depends on you and where you think you're able to bring your a game if mm-hmm. you feel like that you are better for that family or for all of your families in the office, if you think you get better results from kids because of you and your comfort level and what you're used to in the office, then I think mm-hmm. you should keep it in the office. But if you think, gosh, I'm really going to see, or if you feel like you can be more efficient or more effective in the office, then that's what I think you should do because that's, what you feel most comfortable with and better about. But if you feel like you can make the transition, mm-hmm. um, I think home would be better because usually for young children, they're more comfortable in their home environment. You're going to be able to see more readily what real life looks like for them. You would be able to make recommendations to parents that, again, are more specific because you're seeing exactly where they live and the materials they have used and all the family dynamics is weird or dysfunctional or whatever they may be. You see it when you do home visits. <laughs> yeah. And there's those a lot accommodations. <laughs> what were you going to say? I'm sorry. I cut uh, you off. Sorry, no, I just said there's a lot that people don't tell you when they're coming into the (laughs) Exactly. But here's the thing. If you don't feel like that you're able to um, be as effective in a home setting, then just because of 
you know, whatever circumstances in, you know, your just because of you, then I would see kids at home. If you don't feel like you're able to accomplish as, I mean, I see kids in the office. If you don't feel like you're able to accomplish as much during home visits, even though you get more information about the family, you've got to do what you feel like you're going to be in the best position to help the family. Does that make sense to you? It does. And that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, just look at it. Because if you feel like, gosh, I'm struggling during every single home visit, or I've had this for a year and I still don't feel comfortable, or I have, I just, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, I feel like I was supposed to see six people and I ran late all day and everybody was mad at me and now I'm upset with myself. And if you don't feel like you can make that work, you don't have the program requirements that you see everybody at home, don't do it. You know, yeah. you, I would, I would just adapt the, I would just make it, I, I would see kids in whatever setting I was going to be most effective for them. Because yeah. a lot of people don't have that freedom to choose. A lot of people work for programs that it's home visits or nothing, or they work for a program, they work in a school setting, and the kids have to come to them. And so you're in a great position that you get to decide what would be best. And at this point in your career, I would say do wherever Stephanie's A game is, wherever you're at your best, wherever you feel like you can get the best results, that's what you should do. Okay. Yeah. That definitely sounds like that. <laughs> and I think there's one little yeah. guy that I'm just we go back to the office with. Yeah. And just kind of take, you know, and, and make your decision. And you can change your mind later if you decide, gosh, um, this would be better for all of these reasons. You can change your mind if you want to. But I wouldn't struggle so long if you don't feel like you're going to be able to make it work. Does that make sense to you? Yes, definitely. Yeah. I mean, for me, my preference, like now, I don't have a choice. I have to see kids in the office because a lot of, most of the children that I see don't live very close to me. So it's mm-hmm. not practical. You know, I mean, they have to come to me. <laughs> And so I've just had to kind of live with that and know, well, this is what's happening. This is my chosen way to practice now. This is what I'm doing. Uh, and all those years when I worked, had a, and mostly saw children that, you know, were in my local community and they, I, the, the program requirements were that we saw them at home. You know, I saw them at home and I got really, really, really good at that and really comfortable with that. Uh, but if you're choosing and you get to make the choice, do where you feel like you do the most good and the most, um, you know, be be of the most benefit for the kid. That's yeah. what makes sense to me. I um, did have a... I, funny... Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, I was just thinking I had a very funny um, little girl that I saw. She had Down syndrome, has Down syndrome. Uh-huh. And I saw her in the office, and I'm just thinking I've got this awesome cupboard full of toys and tricks. And one of her first phrases that we got out was more toys, with her pointing yeah. at the cupboard. <laughs> like, she knows it yeah. now, we get them. 
Yeah, and that was that was a good setting for her. And I think if you don't have to choose, if you're if if the the if you don't have the program requirements, then you're able you're in a great position to be able to look at where can I do the most good and where am I most comfortable and what's going to be where am I going to be able to do again be more effective with all the kids that I see. And there may be then a kid or two that you decide, I I need to see them at home for these specific reasons, and that's okay. Or, you know, vice versa. If you decide that I really want to see most children at home and just a few of the kids that you can't, you know, get their attention, they're so distracted, you can't figure out a way to make those home visits work, at home, you could pull those kids to the clinic. But I, I mean, I would look at it. I think you're in an ideal situation to look at it as to where you feel like you can be more effective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very helpful. The studies in the states, all the all the all the push in the United States is for a child's natural environment, so that you're going to see them if they mostly go to daycare, you would see them at daycare while their parents work. Or if they're at home with grandma or home with mom, you would see them, again, where the majority of their time is spent because most, well, they say that the studies say that infants and toddlers do best when treated in a natural environment and because you're going to do everything you can to impart that knowledge to parents so that they carry over those strategies and so that you're seeing all of those real-life dynamics and can make those recommendations based on what's really, really, really going on with a child. Um, And and that's, you know, that's what... That's what the move is in early intervention. When I first started my career, though, most children were seen in center-based services. Who knows? In another 10 or 20 years, it may the pendulum may swing back so that all the programs in the United States are more center-based. You know, really it just kind of depends on where you live and what you can do. But, again, you're in an ideal situation that most people don't get to be in because you can decide for yourself what you think is best. And I think if you are really, really, really struggling with home visits that you should just decide either, A, I'm not going to I'm gonna conquer these things or – I'm just not going to worry about it, and we're going to have everybody come to the office. Yeah, and I think also in South Africa that is a big push because we're such a culturally diverse country. They right. Everything is make it culturally appropriate, make it um, right. as basic for them as you possibly can, make it as appropriate for them as you possibly can. So right. yeah, everything is geared towards that. Yeah, and that's how it is in the United States too for infants and toddlers. Most state programs want you to see kids at home, want you to to deal with those issues and stuff. And again, that's how I spent most of my career. And honestly, that's really where I'm most comfortable. It's the mm-hmm. even now um, is is treating kids at home because you you don't have to deal with the whole, um, you know, kids don't have the association like I'm going to the doctor, you know, all those negative experiences that they might have had or all that shyness or, again, those kinds of things, you know, and that's, um, I had a real hard time transitioning from doing most of my career with home visits to switching back to a clinical setting. So, again, we have determined that we are completely opposite in this regard. 
Yeah, and I think if um, our Department of Health here implemented that same theory that yeah. all the therapists go out to the homes, there would be a lot more jobs for speech therapists. Yeah, yeah. And that yeah. certainly is how it is in the state. Some states now, they were going back to that center base because they can't pay. It's more efficient to have families come in, but the research in the states really is for that natural environment push where you are seeing children where they spend most of their time. So, Yeah, yeah. and government services here are hospital and clinic-based as well. Right, right. So, yeah. yeah. So I think, but I think after you've worked a few more years, Stephanie, you're going to be comfortable in either setting, and it won't matter where you see a kid. But just getting started with that can be hard. It really can be hard. Yeah. And I think I've also picked a few tough kids to go into their homes. Like, they are, they have a bundle of issues, so. Yeah. And those kids are going to be hard no matter where you see them. And those yeah. families may be more difficult to treat and work with no matter where you see them, just because of their circumstances. And so you may not even be able to use that as a real good indicator of what would be best because they're hard no matter where you, you treat them. Yep, that's it. <laughs> yeah. I do think if you give yourself, though, a little more structure with home visits and you say, this is my routine, this is what I'm going to do, going to start out with talking about what happened since I've seen them last and then do our activities that I've had planned and you make yourself be as fun and as engaging and as on as you possibly can, that helps with the distractibility with children because then they think, oh, she's going to leave. I better enjoy every minute of her while she's here. Yeah, and, then, and when I do pack up, we do we do have a bit of an issue <laughs> with me packing up. So. But listen, if kids are crying when you leave instead of when you get there, you know you're doing a good job. Yay. <laughs> You are, because they don't want you to leave, because that might have been the most fun hour they've had that week, or how, I don't know how often you see children at home. Again, that's that's great. Look at that, that that's a positive. Now, that is why some natural environment people say we shouldn't take toys to children's homes, because they get upset when they can't keep them. I don't think that that's really the issue. I think it's that their, their best friend in the world is going to leave and know it, and they're sad, and that's they should be sad. I mean, that's a really, that's a connectedness that they're demonstrating. And that's, you know, that's part of life. That's learning how to handle a transition and stuff. So, you know, I have and a it does take on love that. Dog. Sorry, oh, I said it does love the job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. We didn't really get to talk about your second little guy, which I thought was a really great question, and it's the little guy that you're having a difficult time teasing out if it's a receptive language issue versus strong-willed nature in your little guy that's 19 months old. How's how's it going with him? Um, It's going okay. We are getting there. He's very visual in that he is. Um, enjoying the spinning toys and um, right. the, t- the spinning tops, and I've got one that you pull with a little, um, you pull the stick out and it spins around, and he right. loves it and giggles and thinks it's great. Yeah. Um, 
So that keeps his attention with me a little bit longer, but he'll focus in on something else. Last week it was something outside that he saw. I don't know if it was a cat that ran past the window or something, and he ran to the window, and that is all he wanted to do was look out the window. <laughs> right. Do you think he's on the spectrum? I don't think so. Um and you're yeah. in a better position to tell than me. I've never worked with this little boy. I don't know him at all. Uh, but when children are so visual, that is something that we really think about. But then there are children who have those kinds of strengths and they're attracted to those kinds of activities when there's not an issue with the social communication or that social interaction piece. How are his social skills? Are you able to engage him in social games and things too? Very briefly, he has eye contact for um, a few seconds when we're playing together and I've tried Mm -hmm. to do um, some big play and that kind of thing, throwing him up and down and keeping his game on me. Um, But he does prefer to go off and play by himself. He likes having you there because you're not paying attention to him. Like he can, he does move into your space and he is there, but it's not great. Yeah. Um, I just think over time, you're just going to keep building that engagement piece. If he is highly (laughs) visual, I would keep using your visual toys because you know that that's what he's attracted to and make sure that you're a part of all of those toys. I wouldn't let him go off and do those things by himself. I would make sure that to get the toy, he had to still get you. You know, you come with that cool toy. He doesn't get to just take it and hoard it over in the corner. Um, Yeah. Then again, he's not sometimes either. If I've got the toy, then he goes, okay, well, I'm going to go play with that then. (laughs) So Yeah. And again, yeah. that's just that's hard, but it's just making yourself so fun that he learns to tolerate being with you, and that it's more fun to be with you than to do anything else that he could do while you're there. And that that's hard. I mean, that's really hard. But that's in essence what you're going to have to teach him over time with. Um, with all the things that you do with them. And I would keep doing those big movement, big play things. So he learns to like those more um, and Mm -hmm. will include you more with those things. I would still really keep working on receptive language. And I tell, I say this all the time, when there's a question, is it receptive language or is it this child's personality, always err on the side of receptive language with yeah. he's not doing it, he's not being compliant or, not, you know, whatever word you want to use besides compliant. He's not participating because he doesn't know how. And if I teach him how, he's more likely to want to do it. So I would always err on the side of of it's that he can't do it, not that he won't do it, because I think we miss a lot of kids when we say, oh, he's just a little stinker or, oh, he's he's just, you know, bad versus he does not understand what I want him to do to participate. And so we have to really, really, really 
direct ourselves back to that and direct moms and dads back to that too because it's so easy to, to fall on the other side of that and to ignore pretty big receptive language issues that if we just treated that, so many other things would fall into place. Yeah. And, and I know if you're a, lo- a long-time listener of the show, this is not the first time you've heard me say that because that's my no. <laughs> It sounds like a lot of kids you've spoken about before. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Because I do think it's a lot of motor planning things and yeah, I think so just getting that across to the parents is yeah. difficult. Because yeah. they're also asking, is he on the spectrum? And that's not my feeling about him. And I have right. seen a few kids on the spectrum. So I know you get yeah. you just get feeling about it. You yeah, know, the, you do. The, you get your clinical right. intuition. You totally yeah. get that clinical intuition. And you know, and sometimes you can't even really quantify why you feel that way. Um, but you have to just keep really talking with parents about it and keep pointing out the things. And there's some kids that, you know, I mean, there's a whole body of research that even kids with developmental language delays have some issues with eye contact and with joint attention. And so they may not be on the spectrum or, you know, their issues are subclinical. They're not quite enough to be... Uh, categorized as being uh, on the autism spectrum, but they're enough so that they're really preventing a child from learning to understand and use language. So we have to keep addressing those things. And I would look at it like he has visual strengths. And so we want to do make sure every activity that you include with him has a big enough visual component so that he wants to stay with you and he wants to learn from you, and that just takes time and careful planning for what activities you'll introduce and what you'll use. And yeah, I will tell you, too, oh, go ahead, and then I want to I want to make one final point about kids in this age range, but go ahead. Sorry, yeah, we've had some breakthroughs, but they happen when I'm not there. Like, we'll, we've been working a lot on exclamation words. So I go, oh, wow, when something cool happens with the toy, and then dad was there last week, and I said, oh, wow, and he copied me. Uh-huh. And I said, oh, yeah, he's been saying that a lot recently. Yeah. So. And But listen, you need to look at it as it doesn't have to happen for you to, while you're there, for your therapy yeah. to be effective. Some kids, especially kids with other planning issues, you may, your job is just to do input while you're there, Stephanie. Don't worry so much about the output. You may not hear, and I've treated kids like that sometimes for weeks where I think he's not getting any of this and then we'll have a big surge in progress or where mom says, gosh, Mm -hmm. she doesn't say that while you're here, but I hear it the whole rest of the week. And so don't measure your success with it just happening during the session. You know, yeah. look at it, just your job is input, 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 input. And with those kinds of really young kids, especially kids that aren't even two yet, that happens a lot where they just get, they can't quite get it together enough to imitate you while you're there, but parents are going to hear that kind of thing later. And that's okay. You're still doing a good job. Yeah, I think that is also the other thing is I want to prove to the parents, yes, this is working. (laughs) 
Yeah, and so I would celebrate those successes just like you celebrate when they say it while you're there. You will eventually hear those things during a session. But it, you know, some of our little kids need so much processing time that, <laughs> you know, it's going to take weeks of you doing it during the session before you're really going to hear it back. And just celebrate when those parents are telling you, he's doing it when you're not here. And you just keep patting yourself on the back and doing the same things, and eventually you're going to hear it too. But don't measure your success just based on that, just based on what you see immediately. Because the younger the kid is, the less likely it's going to happen when you're there. You're just there to really model how to make it happen the whole rest of the week, and hopefully those parents are able to take that over and do that all the rest of the week when you're not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I wanted to say one one more thing about this age range thing. I think in that period immediately before a child turns two, in that 20 to 21 months to 24 month period, that is one of the hardest developmental periods of all. And we do see lots of negative behaviors then and lots of um, just lots of what we call, I don't know in South Africa if you guys say terrible twos, but that's really yep. where the terrible twos phase kind of came from, that period right before a child turns two, because they're really learning, oh, I can control my world, and being negative gets me sometimes a better response than being compliant with you. And, again, I don't say that in the terms of we have to make children obey and make children mind. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's a it's a tumultuous developmental period, and so it's not a surprise when those are the hardest kids on our caseloads. And so you just have to hang in there and, again, be as fun and as engaging and as pleasant as you can, and then usually a lot of that nastiness will disappear. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and so when you're looking at a kid that age, you just think, I, you know, this too shall pass, this too shall pass. Yeah. And you're going in and doing your therapy routines and knowing that it's going to get better in six months. Yeah, and I think, yeah, it's that whole thing of just not putting a time limit on it and not expecting too much in the beginning. Right, and it's just you're going in and you think about, you know, I really try to think I may not hear one thing from this kid today, and that's okay. Because my job is just to set up the situation so that they're learning language, so that words make sense to them, and so that I'm teaching mom and dad what to do all week long so that those kinds of things take hold. And it's it's hard when you don't always see evidence of that progress during your hour. But as long as parents are telling you about the positive things that have happened, that that's progress and that's success. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I know. Easier those. said than done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you so much for calling in today from around the world. It's what, 10, 15, uh, 15 at night yeah. there now? Yeah, something like that. 10 plus it's 10. It's time yeah. for you to go to bed. It's time to go to bed, Stephanie. It is. Thank you so much for having me on. This is very I loved nice. it. I loved it. Anytime you want to call back, let's set it up. 
because I, I think you were wonderful, and I so appreciate it. And listen, I don't know what TeachMeToTalk.com products you already have and what products you don't have, but I want you to email me and select a product that you don't already have so that I can send it to you, and thank you for being on the show. Yeah, I do have your first DVD because of a patient of mine went over to the States for a couple of months, and she brought it back for me. Oh, that's great. Well, you'll have to pick something out. <laughs> And email me, and I will be glad to send that to you. Oh, thanks, Laura. Oh, you're welcome. You've been so much fun to talk to. It has been fun. But okay, yeah. night, 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 <laughs> Stephanie. Go to bed. Night. Have a good Bye. afternoon. <laughs> Bye. 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 That's all for this week's show. Next week we're going to be talking about uh, AAC and how to implement that. We're going to have a special guest, Sharika from Barbados, from another international call. I hope you'll join me. Bye-bye.